So let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. You're only going to hear me say turn your Bibles to Ephesians a couple more Sundays. We're almost completed this sermon. So if this is your first Sunday ever at Green Tree, it's like going into a movie. Cindy and I went into the movie, uh, the Born movies, you know, the Born Supremacy and the Born Identity. If you've seen those, Cindy and I went in and sat down on the Born Identity and it ended like four minutes later. We had the wrong time uh, of the movie and we're like, well, that was really good. And then they didn't want to give us our money back, which is another opportunity to be kind and gracious. Uh, but uh, if you're new this morning, uh, th- you're coming in kind of at, at the very last uh, of the act. Uh, however, that being said, uh, God's word is powerful wherever it meets us, uh, whatever spot it's going to speak into our lives. Uh, but for those of us that have been going uh, through Ephesians, we're beginning to wind down this morning, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Uh, consider for a moment in your mind uh, how you would define the trip of a lifetime. What would that look like for you? For some of us, it might be a shopping spree. For others of us, it might be going out into the wilderness and hiking around and not seeing another human being for a couple of months. But, but think about the notion, the idea of a trip of a lifetime. Think of the amazing sights that you may encounter along the way. Consider for a moment the growth that would take place in your life personally by experiencing new things. Uh, Think about perhaps what you would learn along the way, things that you would maybe learn about yourself as well as learning uh, about others. Uh, For many folks on a trip of a lifetime, you would probably come out of that trip on the back end a little bit stronger and a little bit wiser than the place in which you entered that trip. Perhaps consider for a moment the people with whom you would travel. Cindy and I had the opportunity last summer to do what we considered a trip of a lifetime, which was uh, seven days through the Grand Canyon, uh, rafting through the Grand Canyon. And there were two things that were amazing about that. One was the Grand Canyon, and the other one was the community of friends with which we traveled. It was truly remarkable. The trip of a lifetime. And all that that would mean. And let's tack on top of it, just to put a little bit of a icing on the cake, so to speak. Let's tack on top of it that this trip of a lifetime ends in paradise. This trip of a lifetime, when you get to the end of it, it means there's no more struggle. There's no more suffering. There's only joy and there's only glory. I think if we passed around a sign-up sheet, everybody would probably put their name down to be part of that trip. But as they say on TV, on those $19.99 commercials, but wait, there's more. There is one catch to this trip of which you need to be aware, and that is this. You're going to have an amazing experience. You're going to grow. You're going to learn. You're going to become stronger. You're going to have a wonderful community of friends. It's going to end in paradise. And along the way, there's going to be someone who constantly and consistently every day tries to destroy you. Do you still want to come along? You still want to join in that journey. Paul has painted a glorious picture in the letter to the Ephesians. He's talked about the beauty and the glory of God's grace and God's mercy. He's instructed us that God didn't do this haphazardly, that God doesn't just occasionally think about sin and how it's broken the world, but he has determined before the foundation of the earth that he was going to bring salvation and he was going to do that through the Lord Jesus Christ. He cares and loves eternally. 
from an eternal perspective, not from a limited perspective. Paul has taken us along the journey of redeeming human relationships, that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility that we have created in our angst with one another, and that sin has resulted. And he has, he has taught us what it's like to live in community, whether that's a, a marriage relationship or, or a relationship with our children or with our parents or with our brothers and sisters. He's talked about what it means to be a follower of Christ that brings glory to Jesus and, and not uh, destroy human relationships. And, and ultimately that ends in us being reunited or united with Christ. But before he ends, he says, and oh, by the way, you need to understand that there is some danger on this journey. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, hear the word of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the harsh reality of it. It calls us to sit up and to listen uh, to the whole counsel of God uh, and not just the, the parts that speak of of your glory and your grace, but also the loving warning you give us that, that we're in for a fight. And Lord, we, we wrestle with ourselves at times in our own sinfulness, and maybe not as much as we should. Uh, Lord, we, we can see our own brokenness, uh, but at times we forget that there is an enemy. There's an enemy of your kingdom, and because we're part of that kingdom, it is, he has become our enemy. So, Father, we don't want to be naive. We don't want to be childish in our approach to our faith. We want to rest our feet upon the solid rock of Jesus Christ and his power. So we pray that you would not only teach us this morning, but uh, embed in us a, a deep appreciation for the reality of the situation, because that will drive us more to you and to your love and to your care. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would teach us this morning. Please forgive my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way of what you want to teach today. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, let me just say at the outset, next week we'll get into detail on the armor of God. It's mentioned twice here, and immediately following this passage, Paul will say things now, take up the helmet of salvation and the shield of faith and so on and so forth. We'll get into that detail next week. Uh, but for our purposes this week, what we're after is this. Jesus' disciples are in a very real spiritual battle, which can only be successfully fought in his power. We're going to be spending our time this morning talking about the power of God and what that means as it relates to this spiritual struggle in which we find ourselves. We have three observations in this text. The first one is we're talking about battle preparation. How do you get ready uh, to face the challenges uh, that come your way as a disciple of Jesus. Secondly, 
we want to make sure that we follow this passage of Scripture and that the enemy is accurately identified. I think at times the church uh, misunderstands who the real enemy is, and we spend a lot of time, we waste a lot of time and a lot of energy going after the wrong source or understanding uh, the correct source uh, in the battle. And then thirdly, we want to consider what is God's intended outcome for his people while they're in the battle. We know his, his ultimate intention is to bring his people home, uh, that disciples of Jesus are secure in our salvation. But along the way, what is his intention for you and I as we face this battle about which Paul speaks in Ephesians chapter 6? Well, let's begin by looking at battle preparation. In verse 10, Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Paul is immediately calling our attention away from ourselves and putting our attention back on God. What Paul is saying indirectly at this point is that you don't have the strength for the battle. It's not within you. You need the power of God. I, I test this quite often in my life because my tendency is to rely on my own strength. My tendency is to rely on my own wisdom. I, I'm partially a product of the culture in which I've been raised. And all of us have been raised in the United States of America, and probably a lot of people in this room have been raised in the Midwest. And we've been taught the value of hard work. We've been taught the value of not, not uh, you know, pushing your responsibility off on somebody else, but owning it for yourself and working hard, uh, being kind to others, uh, being straightforward. And if you work hard enough and you, and you do things the right way, you should get ahead. And, and so we are, in the human sense of the word, uh, in a good way, I think, taught personal responsibility and personal strength. So I think from the human side of the coin, that, that's a good teaching. But that's not where we are this morning. We're dealing with the question of spiritual battles and spiritual challenges. And God is graciously saying to us, this is not about your strength. So the, the notion that I, that I might quit or that, I, that, that, that my pride might say, well, I've just got to do it on myself. I've got to you know, kind of join in with that old Frank Sinatra song and just insist that I, I do it on my strength and I, and I did it my way. When it comes to spiritual things, God says that's nonsensical. There's a different way that you need to think. And the way you need to think is this. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in his strength. Get your eyes off yourself and look to the Lord and say, Father, I'm outmatched. I'm outgunned here, uh, and I need your help. I need your strength if I'm going to, to succeed in being a faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus. Well, what does God say reaction to that? Does, does he promise this? Is Paul saying, be strong in the Lord because every once in a while he, he might help you? Or does Scripture speak to God's strength being available to those who seek it? I want to take you to three passages of Scripture very briefly. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on each one, but each one of them point to God's strength for his people. The first one is a guy named David in the Old Testament who ultimately became king of Israel. Before David became king of Israel, he, he was living with a group of his followers in a, in a certain town and a group of people named the Amalekites. That's a, that's a great name. The Amalekites showed up while David... Uh, and all the warriors were outside of the town, and they ransacked the town, and they took a lot of women and children and, and folks as, as, uh, as um, spoils of war, so to speak. They, they ransacked the town's treasury, took their money, took food, and they ran away. And David comes back to find this disaster in front of him. And it says this, and David was greatly distressed. For the people, for the folks that were left, were talking of stoning him. 
In other words, they were so blaming David for this that they literally were ready to pick up rocks and kill him because all the people were bitter in soul, each of his sons and daughters. But David did what? David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David remembered what God had said to him. David had said, God had said to David, you will always have someone from your family on my throne. I'm going to establish your kingdom, and it's going to be an eternal kingdom. And David hearkened back to what he knew about God, what he knew about God's promises, because there wasn't a whole lot of, of, of self-support at this point. There wasn't a whole lot of support coming from the group. So David had to get his eyes off of his own strength, and he had to look to his Lord, and he had to remember what God had said to him. And he strengthened himself in the Lord. You go to the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul, who is arguably the, the, the greatest of all the apostles, uh, a, a devout witness to the Lord Jesus right up until the end, he, he was killed for his faith, and Paul is talking about a challenge that he faces. And the challenge was this. The challenge was that God had, had so demonstrated his grace and his power to Paul that Paul was in danger of becoming conceited, that Paul was in danger of becoming arrogant, but he said, the Lord took care of that for me. And here's what he says. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. In other words, a physical ailment. A lot of theologians uh, argue that perhaps it was poor eyesight to the extent of almost blindness. We don't know that from Scripture. You can kind of maybe suggest that. But whatever it was, it was a thorn. It wasn't a little pinprick. It hurt. It was painful. It was a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul concludes, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says he's living out what he wrote to us in the letter to the Ephesians. Press into the strength of the Lord. Understand it's not about your strength. When you are weak, that's when God can really work because you kind of get out of the way. You say, okay, Lord, I throw my hands up. I need your help. And God says, well, that's what we should have been talking about all along. And then lastly, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet reinforces uh, the glory of God's promises about strength. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not be faint. God promises strength for his people. So the question that I, I ask myself and the question I would put before the house this morning is, what does your battle preparation look like? How do you go about stealing yourself for the challenges that you will face when your enemy comes after you? We're going to talk about the enemy in just a second. If you think it's, you're going to pull yourself up by your own bootstrap, so to speak, we would be sorely mistaken. Our battle preparation needs to be prayers and prayers offered in humility. Lord, I am not strong enough. Lord, I cannot do this on my own. I need your strength. 
It's, it, it's preparation of being in the word of God and understanding that God promises to give us his strength and resting in his strength. It, it's the exercise of being a community together and sharing with one another. What are the challenges you're facing this morning? Have you told anybody about them? Have you asked anybody to pray for you about them? When you're, when you're tempted to, to go in your own strength, have you said to somebody, you got to talk me off this ledge because if I do what I think I ought to do right now, it's going to end badly. I need to rest and trust in the Lord. God has given us these opportunities to prepare for the battle, and he's promised that he'll give us his strength. Are we taking advantage of that battle preparation? Secondly, not only battle preparation, but have we correctly identified the enemy? You see, brothers and sisters, this is a spiritual battle. This is not a physical battle. Your, enemy are, are, your enemies are not the people around you. They may identify themselves as your enemies. And, and in some way, yes, in, in human terms, we can have human enemies. But what Paul is trying to help us understand is who's behind all of this. Who's the actual enemy? And oftentimes in the church, we start looking at people and going, well, she's my enemy or, or he's my enemy instead of saying Satan is my enemy. The devil himself is the one who wants to destroy the kingdom of God and me in the process. And so Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against what? The schemes of your neighbor? No, the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle. And that that word wrestle there is hand-to-hand mortal combat. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is a spiritual list describing accurately the real foe, the one who cannot have our souls but seeks to destroy us nonetheless. I would sum up this list with three words. Our foe is powerful, our foe is wicked, and our foe is cunning. He is one that is thinking about ways in which he can attack. How can I outflank? How can I outmaneuver? How can I outthink? How can I outwork? Satan is about that all the time. And if we are not paying attention, and if we are not equally as vigilant, we're starting at a great deficit to ourselves. John Stott said this, is it God's plan to create a new society? They, the the forces of evil, will do their utmost to destroy it. Has Jesus broken down the dividing wall of hostility? The devil will try to rebuild it. Does God intend his redeemed people to live together in harmony and purity? The powers of hell will scatter seeds of discourse and sin. We all wish we could spend our lives in undisturbed tranquility among loved ones at home and in the fellowship of God's people. But the way of the escapist has been effectively blocked. Christians have a face, uh, have to face the prospect of conflict with God's enemy and theirs and the grim necessity of hand-to-hand combat. Again, it's understanding that, that Satan cannot have our soul. We are secure in Christ. Jesus said, I won't lose anybody that the Father has given to me. Jesus says, Who, whoever believes in the Son will have life. You cannot lose the salvation that God has given you, and God isn't going to take it back. If it were your salvation or my salvation, and it depended on my power to hold on to it, I could lose it in a heartbeat. I probably would have lost it about 100 times in the last week. But the reality is that God gives the gift of salvation. He's the author of it, and he's going to make sure that it happens. So we know we're secure, but Satan wants the trip to be miserable. He wants to trip us up, and he's scheming against us. So when I think of scheming, 
And I think, how can I best describe scheming? I go to that amazing theological truth that's found in The Princess Bride. <laughs> this is one of the greatest villains of all time. Vicini, and I was, I was, is there anybody that hasn't seen The Princess Bride? It's okay if you want to admit it. You can come forward and we're going to lay hands on you. For, no, we're not. <laughs> Peabody, you have not seen The Princess Bride? Okay, well, Vicini dies, but I'm not giving anything away. He dies in like the first, what, 40 minutes? He, he probably dies the first four minutes. But Vicini's a schemer, and he's stolen the princess buttercup, and her hero, Wesley, has come to her rescue, and he, and he finds Vicini as he's sitting on a rock and outside, and Vicini's got his arms around princess buttercup. She's blindfolded, she can't see, and he's holding a knife to her throat. And every step that Wesley takes toward her, Vicini says, you're killing her, you're killing her, because he, 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 he's going he's gonna to do her in if he can't get the ransom. And so we get into this conversation, and Wesley says, Perhaps an arrangement can be reached. Wesley's the hero. Vicini, there will be no arrangement and you're killing her. Wesley, but if there can be no arrangement, then we're at an impasse. Vicini, I'm afraid so. I can't compete with you physically and you're no match for my brains. Wesley, you're that smart? Vicini, let me put it to you this way. Have you heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates? Uh, Wesley, yeah. Vicini, morons. <laughs> Wesley, really? Well, in that case, I challenge you to a battle of wits. Vicini, for the princess? Wesley, yes. To the death? Yes. Vicini, I accept. Wesley, good. Then pour the wine. Vicini is the master schemer. He's trying to stay four, five, six, seven steps ahead of his enemy, and he's absolutely confident that he can do so. Satan is the same way. We need to understand our identity, our, the identity of our true foe. We need to understand what he's after and, and not coming at us head on. Satan probably isn't going to present you with the opportunity for pure, unadulterated evil. He's probably going to find some weakness and he's going to try to, try to stick you there. And there are times where you go, man, why do I keep sinning the same way over and over again? It might be because we're being blind to a place of weakness, but Satan is not. He is scheming in this battle of wits. That's why Luther said this in A Mighty Fortress is Our God. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. Cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Wesley may have been the equal of Vicini or even better than him, but, but we do not stand a chance against Satan on our own power. And so it takes a spiritual maturity to recognize the true enemy. The last observation in the second point before we move on to the third is Jesus in his earthly ministry. And he's getting ready to head to Jerusalem. And he's beginning to tell his disciples that what's going to happen in Jerusalem. And as they're walking along, they have this conversation and, and he begins to teach them that the Son of Man, and, and that's his name for himself, and teach them, the 12 apostles, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This is really cool. I know you're the Son of God, but you got this wrong. Well, I'm going to straighten you out. <laughs> and, because, and, and God bless Peter. He didn't like what he was hearing about Jesus having to die. Jesus was his friend. So in that sense, it's a good thing, but Peter let his guard down, and now the enemy's found a way in. But Jesus doesn't flinch. Turning and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. You are not 
setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We've got to see the enemy for who he is. We've got to look past the, the person in front of us, so to speak, and to see what stands behind. And we have to be careful because Peter was a follower of Jesus and he had become a, a, a tool in the hands of Satan to try to discourage the disciples and to try to throw Jesus off tasks. Peter let a spiritual guard down and become a pawn for the evil one. I, I, can, I, I don't want to work for Satan. I, I don't want to help the enemy, but I'm certain that within my own sinful nature, apart from the power of God working in my heart and working in my mind, I certainly can. We need to identify this enemy. And thirdly, we need to understand our Father's intended outcome for this battle. The first is this. I want to take you back to verse 10 for just a second. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his mind. just want to remind us that, that that's the calling to trust in the power of God. I want to come back to uh, Luther and a mighty fortress for just a second. The word above all earthly powers, excuse me, wrong verse. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to endue us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Whose word is that? It's not my word. It's not your word. It's the word of God. God's intended outcome is that we know that in the Lord we can be strong. But then he goes on to define it a little bit further in verse 13. And he says this, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand. So that's a defensive notion. To withstand something is to be able to take a blow and to keep on moving. It's to not be overcome. It's to not quit the field, so to speak. So as you, as you take your stand and you're going toe-to-toe and you're doing spiritual battle, you're going to take some hits. You're going to take some blows. You might be staggered a bit, but you don't want to be down for the count, so to speak. You want to be able to withstand, to have the strength to receive the punishment and to keep on moving. So somehow when I was a a young guy right out of college, 22, 23 years old, I found myself in a church basketball league. Now there's a lot of things wrong with that from the very outset. I can't shoot a basketball. I can't dribble a basketball. My vertical leap at that time was maybe five inches. I had no business being on a basketball court. Fortunately, it was a church league, so there were a lot of other guys who were as bad as me, and I spent most of my time on the bench. So it worked out pretty well. But one night in a church basketball league, I don't know who we were playing, the Lutherans or the Pentecostals or somebody, but the, but the Presbyterians and whoever the other team was got into a fight. And I'm kind of sitting on the bench waiting for, you know, and all of a sudden I know this fight breaks out and my buddies are out there. So I, you know, I, I grew up playing hockey. You got to jump in there and protect your buddies. So I run and jump into the, the deal and I'm trying to grab one of my buddies and pull him away. And I get into this fray about the time this guy's right hook is aimed at my buddy's jaw, but I put my face between him and the fist and I get staggered back. Now, this is where growing up with older brother, And playing hockey comes in and it helps because I've been hit by a lot worse than that. My brother hit me with a baseball bat one time and he didn't knock me over. I kept on coming. So I was staggered, but I withstood. And I pulled my buddy away and he looked at me and said, thank you so much for hitting that guy in the fist with your face. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) The blood was coming out of my nose. You're going to take some hits. It may be the death of a loved one. It may be uh, a business deal that goes bad. It might be something that happens to your child. 
if you read the book of Job, you know you're going to take some hits. The only way you withstand those, the only way you're still standing after those hits emotionally and spiritually is to stand in the strength of God, not in your own power. And God gives us his strength. He gives us his armor to withstand the intentional attack of our enemy. But then he goes on and says this, and then having done all to stand firm. And the notion there is is beginning to move on the offense, that we've absorbed the blow and we're still here and and we're moving on and continuing in the fight. When, When your enemies throw something at you and you rebuff every attack that comes your way, it begins to demoralize the enemy. Go back and read about the temptation of Jesus in the Gospels. It says at the end of that third temptation that Satan left in order to look for a more opportune time to tempt Jesus. He left defeated. He gave up. He quit the field because Jesus was resting in the power of God and in his strength. And when you and I try any other methodology, it's not going to work. It is only in God's strength. It is only in his armor that we can not only rebuff the attack, but we can go on the offensive. Some of these pieces of armor that we're going to read about next week and study next week are defensive, but other tools are offensive. Not against humanity, not against other people, but against the kingdom of evil and of darkness. And so we ought to have great assurance from this text this morning, brothers and sisters, that we are not alone. That our father knows that we're going to be in a battle. His son has already fought the hardest battle of all when he went to the cross. We'll celebrate that in a couple of weeks on Good Friday. But a key part is not just knowing the father's intentions, but partnering with him in our preparation for the battle, identifying the enemy and being a people of humble and gracious confidence, not in ourselves, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. Discipleship is a glorious journey. It is filled with remarkable things like grace and faith. In this journey of a lifetime, you get to learn the true meaning of hope, of love and service and compassion. In this journey, which ultimately ends up in paradise, you're exposed to the beauty of prayer, genuine friendship. You end up stronger than you were at the beginning and you realize that you can survive the battle, you can actually thrive in the battle, not because you have strength, but because it's God's intention to bring you home to himself. May we enter the battle not in our own strength, but in the strength of our Father. Will you pray with me? God, we bless your name this morning because you not only redeem your people, but you walk with your people and before your people. You surround us with your grace and your mercy. Father, forgive me, forgive us for times this week when we have seen people as our enemy. Uh, And perhaps we haven't loved well. Father, forgive me for not preparing as well as I should for spiritual battles. Father, forgive us for taking our eyes off you and thinking we we could enter into a spiritual warfare in our own strength. The Lord Jesus, not only forgive us, teach us, remind us, Strengthen us in God's power this day that we would be faithful in fighting for the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the glory of God's kingdom, and for the redemption of humanity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.